0: If you have your Bible this morning, I'm going to use a couple of passages of Scripture. But I want to begin by giving you a couple of illustrations to help you to understand where I'm coming from. With privilege, there is power. Uh, We have a President of the United States. He is privileged to represent the United States all over the world. He is noted as being the most powerful person, a man, a woman in the world, whenever they're the President of the United States. That privilege of being the President automatically gives him the power. The same is true of every political leader down through our system of government down to the local mayor. The very privilege of being a mayor or being a governor or being a senator carries with it certain power. If today, hypothetically, very hypothetically, you were to receive a call on the phone and they said this is the White House calling, the president would like to speak to you. I don't think there's a one here. You might be the strongest Democrat in the world, but you'd still take that call probably. And the phone on the other end, the president would say, Susan, Bob, Joe, Linda, whatever your name is, I have to make a very important call on Al-Qaeda, and, and I've been told that you're very knowledgeable, I'd like for you to give me your advice, and whatever you tell me, I'll do it. You would be overwhelmed, I'm, I would think. But as you thought about it for a moment, you probably would also stop and hesitate and say, He's going to do what I tell him to do. And if it backfires. He'll tell people. It was my idea. It's like. We might say. You know Mr. President. I appreciate it. But I think I'll pass on this one. You can call Kenny Jinx. And let him tell you. Or somebody else. Anybody else. I don't want to do it. Because you see. With privilege is power. But with power is responsibility. I want to tell you a true story. Now, I want to be careful, because I don't want to upset anybody right here before Christmas. But I, I probably will anyway. But anyway, how many of you here, just help me out a little bit. How many of you here have a Catholic background? Okay, I don't, and I confess that. And I want to tell you a truth about Mary. Mary. Though I respect her very much, you know, I believe Mary was the mother of God. I believe Jesus was born of a virgin, but I believe she had other children. So that disagrees with Catholic dogma a little bit. But I want to give you this question. This is a, a theological question, if you would, a philosophical, biblical question. You remember the New Testament, second chapter of John. The story is recounted that Mary, the mother of Jesus, went to and Jesus was also there at a wedding. Wedding was an extremely, there is probably nothing in our culture today to compare with the importance of, and the symbolism of a wedding. It lasted sometimes for a week. And they had showed up for the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And during the course of the wedding, the unheard of happened. The unbelievable occurred. And I can't relate to it, but I've read enough about the traditions of their day to know this was big time stuff. In the middle of the wedding, they gave out of anything to drink. They gave out of the wine or the fruit of the vine. There's been a lot of debating as to whether it was wine or grapefruit juice. I don't know. The Greek word does not say. It simply says fruit of the vine. But whatever it was, they didn't drink the water very much in that day and time. Because so often the water was contaminated. So they would always drink grape juice or the fruit of the vine. Depending on the time of the year at their meals. And they gave out. You just don't give out. That's like being at the front of the line in a wedding reception and they don't have any more meat. So Jesus was there, and Mary comes over to him, and she tells him the problem. Now, it doesn't make the statement directly, but the intimation is unquestionably there. She wanted him to fix it. She knew who he was, she knew he was a fixer, she knew he was God, but he had not done any miracles at the time. So he, she says, they've given out a wine. And he kind of responds there, Woman, what's that got to do with me? It's not my time yet. Now, you can translate that, interpret that, whatever you want to, but I think basic bottom line was he said to her these things. Woman was not a, in any way a bad term. Matter of fact, he used that same address when he spoke to her from the cross. Woman, he says, That doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm not running this wedding, I'm not the one that gave out a wine. I'm the guest here, okay? I have nothing to do with that. And, by, and anyway, you know who I am. I know who I am. But everybody here don't know who I am. And it's not the time that I need to be doing this kind of stuff. The Bible says Mary wasn't quite satisfied, I think. Again, I'm ad-libbing a little bit. So if I am, that's my nature. She went to some servants and said, listen. And my boy over there. He's got some power you don't know anything about, but I know about it and he knows about it. You go over there to him. Whatever he tells you to do, just do it. Don't ask no questions. And the Bible says, of course, they went over and they spoke to him. And he turned the water into wine. I therefore submit to you, if this was a court of law, that Mary changed the mind of Jesus. She caused him to act in a way contrary to what he originally wanted to do. And lest you think that's unusual, it's not unusual at all. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament speaks of times in which God said he repented of an action that he had taken or a king that he had allowed to be appointed. We're going to deal this morning with that particular area that God does change his mind. I can't explain it completely, but I could say to you in context that God has a perfect will. Then God also has a permissive will. And if you this morning will think about it for a moment, if God does not change his mind, you have a major problem. So do I. Why do you pray? Why well, pray if God's going to do what he wants to do anyway, and you can't affect it, and what you say has no impact on it. Is it just an exercise of futility? Is it just a religious Uh, exercise we go through or something we do that's a part of some mystifying worship? No. Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. Does he not say that? Come unto me all ye that labor and heavy laden and what? I will give you rest. People came to the New Testament. The one woman, as you all remember, she did nothing less than touch the hem of his garment and instantaneously was healed. The soldier, the ruler of soldiers came to him and said, I know who you are and the power you have. I don't deserve for you to come to my house, but if you'll speak the word, my son will be healed. And it all happened. So God's effected by our prayers. As a matter of fact, he gave us a prayer, which we have, I do not know why, But it's been falsely addressed down through the years. And I, as a child, was taught it was the Lord's Prayer. I know now it's not the Lord's Prayer. It's my prayer. It's your prayer. It's the believer's prayer. And it simply tells us to come to the Lord and says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it kind of encumbers upon you and I the responsibility as his children to see to it that what God wants happens. You see, we work for him. We're his servants. Whatever he says, we're supposed to carry out to the best of our ability. There's another part of the Lord's Prayer I remind you of this morning. It says, we go to the Lord and it says, ask and he will forgive you. Just like you forgive other people. I don't like that second part. I wish you hadn't put that in there. I've had several people, I remember one particular, and I said it over Lifeline, it was quite a tragedy. I had a person come up to me after church, and that's normally when preachers get their real windings of prayer requests and statements. And a person comes to me and says, oh, uh, you, you mean to tell me God won't forgive me if I don't forgive other people? I said, that's what the Bible says. If you refuse to forgive other people. Well, in this particular instance, they had an ex-spouse, which they didn't hold in high regard. And they said, "I so and so I cannot forgive him. And I said, well, the Bible says if you don't forgive him. Now, I'm not saying you've got to remarry him, and I'm not saying you have to have sex with him, but I am saying you have to forgive him because the Bible encumbers that responsibility on you. And she used a curse word, turned around and walked out of the church, mad as a hornet. But the Bible says if you don't forgive, God won't forgive. It doesn't say he can't, it says he won't. You see, he has, God has this funny way of putting conditions on a lot of stuff. He really does, you know. People say, well, we're saved by grace through faith plus nothing. Yeah, that's ignorant. My Bible tells me if I don't repent, I can't be saved. Do I get amen anywhere? Is that what the Bible says? I have to repent. The Bible says I have to believe. So, it's not everything on God. It's not that God has grace and mercy, which He does absolutely in abundance, beyond measure, but we have to meet the conditions. If we refuse to repent, He won't save us. It doesn't mean He can't, but He chooses not to. Why does He choose not to? Because He wants us to come to Him. He's already made the overture towards us. I don't know, maybe it's probably just me, and I'm, I'm a wee bit heretical. I think Mary made a mistake. I don't think Mary should have asked Jesus to do that, personally. I know it's in there, and I believe it happened. And I believe she influenced the mind of Jesus. But I think it would have been better for the last 2,000 years as people have read the Bible if they didn't think about the first miracle of Jesus being he turned water to wine. seems to me it would like be a whole lot better if his first miracle was walking on water. You know, a healing the sick. Oh, you know, just go the whole route and raise somebody from the dead, No, no, I like that one where he spoke to the water and the water settled down. That would have been a good number one. I can't tell you how many people down through the years have used that experience of Jesus and that recounting of that text, not putting it in context, but using it to justify alcohol abuse. And the other one, of course, they say a little wine for your belly's sake. As before, Malox. I want you to know that. we got Malox now. They have Alka-Seltzer and all that other good stuff. But no, they say, a little wine for your belly. And they use that to say the the Bible's in favor of wine. They don't realize that they didn't drink wine because they wanted to get drunk. They didn't drink wine because they wanted to drink wine. They drank wine because the water made them sick. Uh, That's what the EPA is trying to avoid around here. They they, they got all these requirements so so that your water doesn't get contaminated. You say in Israel, in the Middle East today, for the most part, they still fight the battle against contaminated water. So therefore, in the Middle East, one of the things that they did to fight that battle is they drank water grape juice, or wine, or fruit of the vine all the time. I-, I wish she hadn't made that statement. I wish she hadn't changed the mind of Jesus. But Jesus, probably his human side, wanted to please his mother. I-, I think all of us who have mothers and have had mothers, we know what that's like. My goodness, it's good to be able to make your mom happy every so while And if mom wants it, you know, mom's supposed to get special especially us fellows, you know. If, if our mom wants it, that's kind of the end of the story. Now I go. want to go with you, and, and I appreciate Nancy and Evan are putting this verse of Scripture in the bulletin this morning. You don't have to have your Bible. But go with me if you have your Bible to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. It's a marvelous series of chapters here, 38 through 43, a great, it's a great passage of Scripture. But I just want to deal with right now the first five verses of the 38th chapter. And then I'll place it in context. And I'll help you to understand the, the power of privilege. In those days, Hezekiah became ill. You got this in your bulletin, so you don't have to find it even. And was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, this is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You are not going to recover. Aren't those words of encouragement? Sounds like a typical preacher to me. Yeah, you feeling bad? Think you're going to die? You're right. Reminds me of my favorite commercial. I've told, I, my, I don't like commercials generally, but I love this one. You see, remember the one of the fellows lying in the bed and the doc comes in and he asks the nurse, is the doc any good? And she says, okay, I think that's the funniest commercial. You know, yeah, okay. He's a, the fellow comes in and says, well, yeah, hey, I just got reinstated. Well, almost. <laughs> Isn't that the doctor you want? Anyway, that has nothing to do with the message, but I gave that to you for nothing. <laughs> hey, look, I'm a substitute. You get what you pay for, all right? Words of encouragement from Isaiah. Yeah, you're going to die, sure enough. I've heard from the Lord. Now you have to, I want you to understand here. You don't have to, but I want you to understand. Hezekiah was a good friend of Isaiah's. Isaiah had been a confidant to him. Isaiah had been his resident preacher, if you would. He was to him what Billy Graham was to Nixon. He was the one he always went to. And he was probably happy to see him coming. Here he is sick, thinks he's going to die. He's got some kind of a boil or some kind of a skin problem. And it's it's going to kill him. I guess something about the condition of that day. Other people had what he had. And they all died. And he was worried he was going to die. But here comes his good buddy Isaiah, who's a prophet, man of God, who always comes to encourage him and give him words. And he comes in and boom, you're going to die. Get your stuff in order. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall. And he prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I've walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And he cried bitterly. Now let me say a little bit to you about Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a man who had faithfully served God in spite of his crazy dad, Ahaz. So those of you who have a little bit of a dysfunctional background, I want you to know so did he. His dad was a nut. His dad rebelled against God. His dad sold out his country. His his dad ended up with losing his country. His dad was the reason that the people of Israel were taken captive by Babylon. His dad was the one who caused his people, many of the leaders of his people, to have hooks put through their noses and ears and literally dragged behind chariots back to Babylon. Everybody hated Ahaz. And here's his boy and his boy comes on the scene after his dad's death, takes over the kingdom, and immediately reverses his things. And one of the first things he did is he went to God in prayer, and he boohooed and cried before God, and he changed God's mind. Because God was letting condemnation and great terror fall upon Israel. And he said, oh God, have mercy on these people. They'll repent, and I'll see to it that you're made first. And God reneged. He began to bless Israel Hezekiah honored his word. He reestablished worship in the temple and Israel began to turn around wasn't too long after that, the Babylonian king sent him another message. I'll send him a message in writing. And basically on that writing, he, he denigrated God. He put God down and said, where is your God? Your God will not save you. No other group of people has their God saved them from me. And your God won't save you from me either. When I come, I'm going to take care of you. You're going to be crucified. I didn't use those words. But he put him down. said, your God is nobody. Hezekiah went to the Lord and laid this letter on the altar and said, Oh God, would you revenge your people? Just do something. And sure enough, he did. Overnight, the army of Babylon was struck with disease. Thousands of their people died. As speculation is, historically and archaeologically, the bubonic plague hit. They left and went back to Babylon and never again came against Israel during the time of Hezekiah. God had always listened to Hezekiah because Hezekiah lived a righteous and good life. So he was, he'd gain, he'd gain credibility. If you would, he, he'd been putting deposits in the bank of spiritual aid. I do not want to teach good works, but this is what he said to God. God, look, I'm a good buddy. I'm your man. I'm your full of righteousness. I've done your will. Now you're going to make me die, right? in The pinnacle of my power. Don't do that. Don't do that. The Bible says, if you go back to Second Kings and Chronicles and read something quite unique, because it says, before Isaiah got away from the palace area. And so I don't know how long it takes to get to the palace area, so I'm, 2700 years ago, but he didn't get out of the palace area, and God stopped him and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, got another message. I want you to go back and talk to him. That's the next verse. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer, and I've seen your tears. I will add 50 years to your life. Hezekiah changed the mind of God. He had great power because he was privileged. He was there where he was because God put him there. He honored God. God honored him. For whatever reason in the divine court and let me just mention to you if you ever want to get a view of how God makes decisions you might want to read the book of Job because it talks about the divine counsel how God had a meeting and they allowed the devil to show up, almost like a courtroom scene. Let him plead his cause. I don't know how God came to the conclusion that he did, but he came to the conclusion it was time for Hezekiah to die. Hezekiah said, I don't want to die. I've been a righteous person. Now, I have to ask the question in my mind. Maybe you wouldn't, but I asked, why would God change his mind? God had to have a reason. I don't believe God just arbitrarily, uh, abstractly in the moment said, hey, Go tell Hezekiah to pack up. I'm pulling him off. He's going to die. I think he had a reason, but he doesn't tell us what it is. And that's another thing I have to keep in mind. And I remind, be careful how you ask God for his reasoning. He doesn't have to give me a reason. And I'm not sure I want to know the reason either. But I sometimes feel like I'm asking. And God heard Hezekiah's prayer and said, okay, I'll give you 15 more years. And Hezekiah honored God, but I need to get along with the rest of the story. Word got out of what had happened to Hezekiah. He was miraculous, a supernaturally healed, and word began to spread here, there, and yon. And you know what happens when people hear those things. They're glad, and some of them celebrate with you. He was not unique because he was a man of privilege, but but he got gifts. I have a friend that uh, is from Springfield, Missouri. And some of you might remember that Springfield, Missouri is the hometown of none less than Harry Truman. Some of you don't even know who Harry Truman was, but he was president at one time. And uh, he said that when Harry Truman came back from the White House and moved back to Springfield. He lived in his in-law's home until the point of death. He never lived anywhere. Unlike most presidents who come out filthy rich today, he didn't come out rich at all. Matter of fact, they had to give him a special pension just for him to get by. But he was, this, this man that I know was a young boy, and he would be, was a delivery boy in town. And he said, I went to Harry Truman's house nearly every single day and said, Harry Truman would meet me at the door many times, and and he was always irritated, it seemed like, he said, because everybody in America, it seemed like, sent him gifts. He said he would tell me, he said, I don't know why people send me all this stuff. I don't want it. I don't need it. He said, you see this fence? He had a fence all the way around his yard in Missouri. He said, you know why this fence is here? It's because of these crazy people. They come here, and they have picked every bush in my yard bald. Not a leaf left on them. Everybody wants to go back to wherever they're from with a leaf from my yard. So I had to put a fence up so I could protect my trees. And he said, they send me all these gifts and I don't want them and I don't need them and I throw them in the trash. I don't need them. Hezekiah didn't throw them in the trash. He received luxurious gifts from all over the world just like every president of the United States did and does. And Hezekiah stored them in the palace. And one day... The Babylonian king, I believe he was, sent a representative or two or three to see him and to congratulate him, theoretically, on the outside, congratulate him on his healing, and be let him know how grateful he was that he had survived. And most people would be of the persuasion he really did it because he wanted to enter into a political and military alliance with Hezekiah. And they came with a message from the king and said, Great Hezekiah, our king. Thinks you're wonderful, thinks you're great, so glad that you're doing fine, blah, 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 blah. And Hezekiah speaks up. Said, I'm so glad you came, boys. Hey, would you like to see what I've got in my place? Really? Oh, yeah, he said, I got a lot of good stuff. You ought to see it. And the scripture says he took him to every crevice of the palace, showed him everything he had bloviated, pumped his chest out, said, see who I am? I got this from this person, that from that person. I wouldn't be surprised. I, I, don't, I don't know about you folks, but I wouldn't be surprised but that somewhere in the course of that discussion, he probably said, hey, did you hear about my healing? you know how it happened? God told me I was going to die, but I changed his mind. Me and God like that, buddy. We we're just like that. I talked to God. God changed mine, mind and all over. with. That's why I'm here. Yeah, your king heard that, right? Yeah. And they... Stood around, stayed around, fellowshiped, did whatever they did, and they left. Wasn't long. Who is it? Isaiah. Oh, Isaiah. Good to see you, buddy. Last time you came, you had bad news, but then you solved the problem. Good, come on in. Isaiah comes in and says, "Uh, did you get guests here? Yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, I did. What did you show them? He said, I showed him everything in the palace. Took him everywhere. God's not pleased with that. Hezekiah acted in pride and arrogance. He didn't glorify God, he glorified himself. See who I am? See what I have? Go back and tell the king how powerful I am. Hezekiah said, Okay, God's heard your prayer, and he's going to honor his word, and you're going to live 15 more years. But when your death comes, your son, who you will have, will never experience the joys you've experienced. And all of your descendants will suffer and die. And all of the people of Judah will become captive to a foreign land. And everything that you have built up will be dissipated. This is the judgment of God. Your whole family will be destroyed. The Bible says Hezekiah realized his sin, and he said, that's the word of God, so be it. At least I get to live my lifetime in peace. I submit to you this morning that Hezekiah would have been better off if he had died in that bed in the first place. Sometimes it's better not to try to change the mind of God. That's why the Bible teaches us to pray, not my will, but thine be done. He didn't apparently hear that. And he got what he wanted, but he couldn't deal with it. Some things are worse than death. A few of you probably have had the opportunities I've had to go to Israel. And one of the places they take you in Israel, still take you there today, it's a military Shrine almost is Masada. There was a movie out about it several years ago. I understand, still today, according to Benjamin Netanyahu, that whenever they graduate some of the commandos from the Israeli army, they take them to Masada to remind them of their heritage. But around 70 AD, when the Romans began to attack Israel, several thousand Israelis made their way to the top of this military embankment, palace, and there they encamped, and the Romans couldn't get to them for a long period of time, but over a protracted period of time of months, the Roman soldiers built, and you can find it still there today, they built a, a, a ramp of stone and dirt all the way up to the top of the mountain, so they could roll their chariots and, and roll their bastions up there. And they got a ram up there. They were going to ram through the side of the, pa- of, the t- of the town and go into Masada. And Masada still is there today. And everybody, including everyone inside of the camp, knew the Romans were coming tomorrow. And sure enough, the next morning, they battered their way through. And the Roman soldiers rushed into Masada. If you've heard the story, you know what happened. When they got in there... Every single person in there except one was dead. The Jews had all made a covenant. They divided their groups into fives and tens and twenties throughout the entire area. And one man was to kill five. And when they'd done all their killing, all those people were to get together. And one man was to kill all of them except one. And that person was going to commit suicide because they were convinced of two things. Number one, before their God, they'd be better off to die of their own hand, even in suicide, than they would be to sin against God. In their mind, it would be a sin to fall to Rome. And number two, they felt like it would be a sin against God for them and their wives and their children to be allowed the torture and whatever they would experience at the hand of the Romans, and they took their own lives. Some things are worse than death. Sometimes you're better off to die than you are to sin. You're better off to die than you are not to glorify God. Hezekiah didn't learn that lesson very well, though he was one of the most righteous men that ever lived and goes down the annals of history of Israel and all the Jewish kings as one of the best kings Israel ever had. But just like other people, he had a tendency to get puffed up when God did something, instead of saying, to God be the glory, he had a tendency to say, hey, look at me, I'm somebody. And God doesn't share his glory with anybody. But he will answer your prayers because you're privileged. You're a child of the king. And if you're not a child of the king this morning, you can become one. The Bible says all you need to do is repent and ask Christ to come into your life. And he'll do it. He'll forgive you. You might have a hundred reasons. The devil says, you're not good enough or you've been too bad or it's too late. or It's all a lie. Because God's got the power to speak the word. And it happens. You see, he has the creative word that he spoke and the worlds came into existence. The, the reason we know about divinity and God is not because he can create, create. There are some very creative people here today. I'm sure I'm not one of them, but some of you are. You're very creative. But I have to tell you what you already know. You cannot create anything without something. But God can speak the word and he can create something from nothing. Amen? He's very powerful. So if he chooses today to forgive you of your sins and speak the word to you and say that you are my child, you can be saved today. You may have been walking in the wilderness for 40 years, 30 years, 50 years. God can speak the word today. If you will repent and believe, he will save you. And if you have done that, he has saved you. You are a child of God, which means you are privileged and you have power. Because you see, the only power that an unsaved person has is the power to pray the prayer of repentance, and God will forgive them. But if you're a child of king, God hears your prayer. You say, oh, I got an uncle. He was full of the devil. and He, he sinned like hell and everything else, but he, was, he said God heard his prayers. I don't care what your uncle, grandmother, mother, daddy, or you say, God's not obligated to hear your prayer if you're lost unless it's a prayer of repentance. You say, well, that's just the way it is with people. No, 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 no. He also says the prayers of a righteous person avails a great deal. So if you're a Christian this morning, you're privileged and you have power. You have power to go to God. And God will hear and answer your prayer. I'm just about finished this morning. For that we're all grateful. But would you go with me please to the 50th chapter. I want to give you this one last scripture. And I'm going to invite you this morning to come to this altar. Some of you that are here have not given God the glory. Maybe you should have when he answered a prayer. Some of you here this morning be carrying a burden that you don't know how to deal with. God will lift that burden. There might well be someone here this morning. You need to be saved. God will save you this morning. Can I get an amen anywhere in the church? God still saves, seeks, redeems. Listen to this marvelous verse 15th verse, 50th chapter, book of Psalms. Call upon me in your day of trouble. Got one? Bad news from the doctor? Somebody in your family got a problem? Trouble? Jesus said, call upon me. God says, call upon me. Then what does he say? I will deliver you. Do you believe that? That's what the Bible says you have to believe. Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, you can move mountains. He ain't talking about mountains. God's not an agricultural person. He's not interested in your farming habits. He says, faith. Is what causes me to move. But then he adds this final verse And you shall glorify me. If you don't glorify him, you've not met the condition. He says, If you have a trouble or a burden, come to me, I will deliver you. But when I deliver you, when he saves you this morning, he expects you to glorify him. Tell other people what God's done for you. Share it with your children. Share it with your father. Share it with your mother. Share it with your workers because that's what God wants in return. I want you to glorify me. And no matter how old we are, he can do it for you today. He can save your soul. Forgive all of your sins. Wipe you out completely. Everything. You say, you don't know how bad I've been. You're right. I don't care. What's better? God doesn't. God can forgive. Someone asked me a very philosophical question one time. And it's true. And all of you have asked If God is omniscient, how can he forget? (laughs) Great question. But the answer is because he's also omnipotent. I remember being in college and someone posed the great question. Can God make a ball so big he can't roll it? What a stupid question. My great brother in Christ, who's gone to be with Jesus, but best Bible teacher I've ever been with in many ways, Dr. O. D. Lovell. I asked him that question one time. I said, Doc Lovell, I've had this. And he you'd have, if any of you knew Dr. Lovell, he went. <laughs> he said, Yes, but he's got more sense. <laughs> Boy, I thought that was a great answer. How can God forget? Because he wants to. He wants to. They tell me in my mind, I'm not sure about yours, but that sometimes in my life, in your life, that if something traumatic or something happens, there's something in our our minds that can click, and we literally can't even remember it. God will forgive you and forget your sins today, if you want Him to. God will meet your need today, if you want Him to. God will help you in your trouble today, if you want Him to. But you must ask. Would you stand with me quietly, please, if our musicians would come or whomever? Heavenly Father, these are your folks. They're my friends. Some of us need to do some real business with you this morning. Some of us need to apologize for not having given you the glory. Lord, I believe in a group this size, there's at least one or more that they need to give their life to you. They need to repent, ask you to come into their lives. And I know you'll do it. There are some folks in this room today where I know for certain they're carrying some heavy burdens. They're in trouble. Deep trouble. They don't know what to do. But they're determined they'll give you the glory. Help them to bring their problems to you today. Give them the faith, I pray, Lord God, to reach out and touch the hem of your garment as the woman in the New Testament did, that they might receive your power in their lives i thank you for it for i pray it in the name of my savior the lord jesus christ amen folks as dave plays i'd like to invite you to come this morning for any of these reasons that i've mentioned you haven't given god the glory you should have you'd like to do it you've got troubles or burden you want to give it to him and you're going to you're ready to give him the glory And if you need to be saved this morning, you've never given your life to Christ, you're backslidden, maybe you did many years ago, but you've not been serving Him, you'd like to come this morning, I invite you to come. Those of us who are here that don't have a need to come, pray that God will be glorified the next few minutes in this service, and we'll thank you for that, Lord. So would you obey God this morning, please?